Hello, and welcome to Kitchen Sink Conversations. I'm Klein Kitchen. I'm joined today by Jared Cohen, who is the founder and CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet. Jared is also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and previously was Google's first director of ideas and chief advisor to Google's CEO and executive chairman, Eric Schmidt. Between 2006 and 2010, he also served as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a close advisor to both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. He is also the best-selling author of five books, including The New Digital Age, Transforming Nations. Jared and I recently connected and were able to talk about a number of interesting topics that I'm sure you'll enjoy. These include the work that's being done at Jigsaw, the future of U.S.-China relations, and the role of the private sector in geopolitics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jared, thank you for taking the time to uh, join us for this conversation. Uh, really appreciate you making uh, making the time. Thank you for having me. No. Uh, so uh, I always like to start with introducing our guests. I uh, would just love to hear a little bit about your background, what you've done, uh, and then we'll move more into what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I always uh, I always sort of describe what I do as a portfolio of various things that I'm curious about. Um, so my curiosities are a well-diversified portfolio of foreign policy, technology, and American presidential history. Um, so the way that manifests is um, my background is uh, I spent four years on the policy planning staff at the State Department across uh, two administrations, um, the, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Uh, in policy planning, I oversaw Middle East counterterrorism and a new technology portfolio that didn't exist. Um, uh, in terms of technology, I ran Google's think tank called Google Ideas for for uh, for six years, and we can get into that a little bit later. And now I'm the founder and CEO of Jigsaw, uh, which I founded um, at Alphabet uh, at Alphabet's inception. And then the presidential history is is my my childhood fascination and curiosity. I've been collecting presidential memorabilia since I was eight years old, uh, reading about the presidents since I was eight years old at different levels of sophistication along the way. Um, and I consider myself an amateur historian with a real passion for uh, telling history uh, the way that I would have wanted to hear about it as a kid. Okay. And so do you have a, a favorite president, may not be the right way to say it, but is there a president whom you have a particular fondness? Oh, that's a great question. So um, it depends what vantage point one looks at it through. So I, I can't resist uh, Theodore Roosevelt just because he's a completely absurd human being. Um, and what I always find fascinating about Theodore Roosevelt beyond his epic teeth is he he was a man sort of, you know, who inherited the presidency, who just seemed like he belonged in a different century. Um, and I think it's what made him so effective. And, you know, he had this healthy disregard for the impossible. He was, um, you know, a proper Renaissance man who, you know, he was a bulldozer because he believed in things and a bulldozer because he was curious about things, not because he was necessarily a political animal. And he was, he was relentless until the day he, until the day he died. So I, he's the one I'm most fascinated by. Um, I have a, I have a, a soft spot for just absolutely, you know, absurd niche, um, you know, anecdotes that happened in history. So if we went a little bit deeper, some of the president presidents that I'm fascinated about are presidents that people never really talk about. Yeah. So with Theodore Roosevelt, uh, I read the first two portions or the, the first two volumes of the three volume set. I'm 
losing the the author's name right Edmund, now. But, Edmund Morris. Yes. Yeah. So the rise of Theodore Roosevelt, the, the first one I thought was just phenomenal. And it gave me a real sense of, you know, Teddy was just a whirlwind. I mean, he was just unstoppable. And the two things that stick out in my mind from reading that are, uh, one, uh, when he was young, he was actually sickly, you know, and, and asthmatic and had all kinds of issues in his dad, you know, but he was a, a mental, you know, just very capable young man. And I remember the story he tells about how um, his father said, you'll never master your mind until you master your body. And that kind of inspired him to go and work hard and he becomes this kind of barrel chested, you know, kind of guy. Yeah. And, yeah, and then yeah. the, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I said that, that, that that's right. He, what happened is when he was a kid, he overheard his parents talking and he overheard them saying he, they didn't expect him to live very long. Uh, and this really, I mean, imagine how traumatic that is for, for, for a kid. What, what's interesting about, and, and it's true, his, his father had this view that, that he could overcome his physical frailty, uh, you know, frailness by, by, by transforming his body. So they built a gym in the second floor of their New York townhouse. Um, and he just, you know, did the, you know, I guess the, you know, 1800s equivalent of pumping iron um, every single day. <laughs> but I think what's fascinating about Theodore Roosevelt and why I've always been kind of so captivated by him, the way he dealt with adversity was, was really fascinating. So he was a very, he really suffered from, from mental illness. I mean, he was a, a depressive person and his way of dealing with um, physical frailness and mental frailness was to just outpace both. Um, so he hyperactively, you know, raced through life, not to, you know, um, not to sort of shorten life, but to get as much done as possible. So he lived life as if he wasn't expected to live very long, but at the same time rejected the idea that he wasn't expected to live very long. And it's what made him, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's nobody who was less happy um, to, to, to um, experience peacetime as a president than, than, than Theodore Roosevelt. Um, because I think that he, he, he wanted, just to put it bluntly, he wanted to be a wartime president and he was, you know, bummed out that, <laughs> that, that he wasn't. Um, and, um, but he accomplished so much during his presidency and he brought that kind of hyperactivity to the presidency. And so I've always, I've always found him to be a really interesting mental model, um, for how to deal with kind of the trials and tribulations of life. He, he just didn't accept it. And, and these were, mental and physical realities and he just did not accept it so okay you've had uh, that's a good tie-in so you've obviously done a lot i mean you're you're relatively young for the the level of experience and opportunity that you've been able to seize which is awesome how much in your own mind has that model that idea of teddy roosevelt i mean how influential over you has he been Uh, you know i think it would be revisionist um of me to say you know when I was a kid, I was enchanted by Theodore Roosevelt and I kind of modeled my life off of him, although it would be a fun revisionist exercise. I, I think it's more just impulsive than that. You know, I think we all have our personalities and I wake up every single morning curious about certain things. And um, I, I get sort of obsessive about my curiosity. So if I decide that I'm interested in a particular piece of history, um, I want to write a book about it. If I decide that I have a new you know, idea that I want to test out in the foreign policy realm, I don't just want to write about it. I want to write about it. Um, you know, treat the publication of the idea as the equivalent of seed funding. Um, and then 
I want to go implement it. Otherwise, it's just an intellectual equivalent of a private company that never exits, right? And so um, I like to see things through. I've sort of always been that way. But I also play a little bit of a game of, of kind of intellectual survivor in the sense that, you know, we our, our brain only has, like, you know, so much capacity and bandwidth. And I always try to overload it with things that I'm curious about. And that really is the only metric. The only way to sort of, you know, make sense of the the, the portfolio of curiosities is is just, you know, the commonality is what I'm interested in. Um, and, you know, every day I sort of wake up and, you know, there's sort of a natural equilibrium or, 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 or pulse check. And I'm very comfortable voting things off the island if I lose interest in them, or I feel like the idea was better in my head than in reality. It's kind of, a, a, you know, the, the way, you know, entrepreneurs think about, you know, failing fast. I'm comfortable doing that with, with ideas as well. And so just from a, kind of a practical standpoint, how do you how do you manage yourself in such a way as to where the majority of your time is spent on those kind of essential things and minimize the tax of well of just non-essential things the, the things that all crowd in on us all day uh, do you do you have a particular strategy particular methods uh, particular attitude toward you know kind of making sure that you're putting the majority of your time and energy toward those essential things? So that's a great that's a great question because I sort of reject this idea of siloing my different interests and areas of activities, right? And and you know, throw in the fact, you know, being a dad to three girls, seven, five, and two, uh, which is, you know, you know, the ultimate <laughs> responsibility as, as as you know. Um, but I what I you know, I mentioned three things at the beginning, you know, foreign policy, uh, technology and and American history. And you know, for me, the the real challenge and joy in life is when I can have those things not be mutually exclusive. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, which is, you know, I spent five years writing a book called Accidental Presidents about the eight times in history a U.S. president died in office and how it how it changed the course of American history. Um, but I also was, you know, running a company in in you know in in, in Jigsaw at the same time, um, and. Those two things, you know, Jigsaw focuses on, you know, <laughs> looking at, you know, future technologies that can help address some of the biggest problems that are destabilizing the internet. On the surface, that doesn't seem like it has much to do with a bunch of dead presidents, you know, lost in the annals of history. But uh, where, where the overlap was is every single day I would go to work and I would focus on what happens next in the world, um, forecasting where the biggest technical problems were going to be and focus on building and shipping solutions to address them. Right. So very forward looking. And then I would go home at night and I would stay up late and spend all my free time focused on the past. And over the course of five years, I sort of developed this, you know, philosophy that, you know, when I'm working on the future, I'm reflecting on the past. When I'm reflecting on the past, I think about the future. And I think that especially in the technology space, um, you cannot possibly imagine where you're going without appreciating and digging into where we came from and, and where we are today. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, there's a, there's a, a, a American inventor who um, takes partial credit for creating the air conditioner named Charles Kettering. And he had this great quote where he said, we should all be concerned about the future because we're going to spend, have to spend the rest of our lives there. I think the inverse of this is you can't understand the future without um, understanding the past because, you know, everyone who came before us spent their lives there. Um, and so, you know, I like combining all the different things that I do. And, and I think some of this happened accidentally. Um, so, um, you know, when I was working at the State Department, um, nobody was really thinking about technology. This was, you know, you know 2006 to 2010. And 
I wasn't really that interested in technology growing up and even in high school and, and college, but I spent a bunch of time in Iran in 2004 and, and 2005. And I went there to, to interview, you know, you know, the opposition and reformers and people who were pushing for change in the country. And when I was in the southern city of Shiraz, um, I, I just saw something pretty extraordinary, which was, you know, all these young people using Bluetooth technology to call and text complete strangers. And it sort of dawned on me at that moment that, that you know, there's kind of two stories of innovation that happen simultaneously in places that look and feel very different than the United States from a, a freedom perspective. Um, there's the story of innovation that we all know, which is, you know, great technology that in the case of Bluetooth was used to talk and drive at the same time. And a separate story of innovation, which is people who have a different set of needs and a different set of problems finding new applied use cases for that technology. And my view is it's the second story of innovation that's going to change the world for good and for ill, by the way, not the first story of innovation. And I just was really captivated by this idea because as I dug deeper into the technology space, I really saw very little attention being paid to the second story of innovation. I just decided to kind of make it my, my life's work. And, and I don't know if it'll be my life's work, but it, it's certainly been um, the body of my work for the past 15 years. Okay. So let's talk then about, uh, describe a little bit about what Jigsaw is and then how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the evolution of Jigsaw, um, you know, uh, starts with, you know, Eric Schmidt coming to me, you know, after we had gotten to know each other when I was in the State Department and saying, you know, we're going to have 5 billion new people connect to the internet in the next decade. I don't know what that's going to do, but I have to believe it's going to have a disruptive impact on the world. It's going to change the way we think about technology, and it's certainly going to change um, the company that I run, in this case, Google. Um, and he said, you know, do you want to come and, you know, build out a think tank to help us figure out how to do this? And I remember saying to him two things. One, I said, um, I'll do it on two conditions. One, you know, we should write a book together um, that asks this question, what happens when another 5 billion people connect to the internet? Because I think we should push ourselves to, you know, you know, make a bunch of claims about it. And then, you know, you know, future events will determine whether we were right or not. Um, uh, but I think I, I told him, I said, I want to blend, you know, our two perspectives, you as a technologist, me as, you know, somebody coming out of the foreign policy world. Um, so we did, we did that. And I said, too, I don't want to run a think tank without engineers. Google's an engineering company. And, you know, so think tank in the context of Google requires both, you know, technical perspective um, and sort of policy perspective. And so he agreed to that. So I ran that for six years. Um, and a lot of what Google Ideas was doing was helping the company look around the corner. So, you know, when I first joined the company in 2010, nobody was talking about disinformation. You know, even honestly, you know, nefarious cyber attacks and state-sponsored cyber attacks, they were kind of this niche, you know, issue. We weren't talking about organized harassment online. We weren't talking about, you know, even sort of censorship on the scale that we see it today. We weren't talking about surveillance on the scale that we see. I mean, there were all these sort of issues that, you know, that we were interested in, you know, extremism on the internet. Um, there were all these issues that, you know, because of the different parts of the world that I had been in, it seemed obvious to me that as these societies came online, um, the problems that were festering in some of these countries were going to spill over to the internet. And the big consequence of 5 billion people connecting to the internet is total technological ubiquity where the internet, you know, um, reflects all the complexities and problems of the physical world. Um, except with an additional challenge of the center 
um, is less viral than the sort of extremes. Um, and so, um, so as, as Google Ideas, we did a lot of forecasting. And then when Larry and Sergey wanted to create Alphabet as a, as a parent company, I was asked if I wanted to kind of take the concept of Google Ideas and turn it into to, to something that, that didn't just forecast, but also focused on building solutions. Um, and so that's what, so when Jigsaw was created in, um, in, in 2015, you know, 2016, early 2016, when it launched, our, our model was basically look around the corner at big problems that are sort of falling through the cracks. So we'd sort of apply a geopolitical lens to technology. Um, you know, and we had a rule that we don't want to sort of sound the alarm bells on a problem without offering up a potential solution as well. So, you know, so that's what we did. We worked on censorship, disinformation, organized harassment, state-sponsored cyber attacks, you know, toxicity in conversation, you know, just to sort of name a handful. And then what's really interesting is the issues that we had sort of spotted by looking around the corner. And by the way, the way that we did this was we would look at, there, there's a handful of adversarial countries in the world that are responsible for a lot of the mischief. And we basically identified the places that they use as target practice, you know, hubs of innovation for nefarious cyber activity. And our view was let's forward deploy engineers to like Eastern Ukraine, Taiwan, um, you know, the places that are sort of, you know, where they do it first and worse. And then that's our crystal ball of what's to come. It's a very simple formula, but it worked really well, right? So you want to know what Russia is going to do in the 2016 election or the, you know, midterm elections, look at what they're doing in Eastern Ukraine, and you'll see their sort of latest and greatest tactics. Um, but a lot of these issues ended up mainstreaming. So now if you, if you talk to any, you know, big tech company, you know, they spend an enormous amount of resources and time focused on fighting a lot of these same challenges that, that we've been working on for a long time. So that was an exciting opportunity for us because, you know, now the way that I sort of describe Jigsaw is we take these challenges that companies are deploying, you know, massive amounts of resources to address and Jigsaw looks for kind of new theories of change, right? So, you know, we, you know, if we look at disinformation as an example, you know, we have this insight that the way to fight disinformation is you get to the user before the user gets to the content, right? And we use behavioral psychology as a sort of insight for, for some of our technological solutions, or, you know, in the case of, um, you know, in the case of toxicity in, in conversation, we had this insight that you, um, if you had enough training data, you could measure the emotional impact of language on people. Um, and you could return, return scores against how toxic it is, how much of a personal attack it is. Um, and, and sort of, so, so, so we test, these are sort of controversial things for a big company to do, but Jigsaw is able to test out some of these theories of change and everything that we do, um, has a technical theory of change and has an issue theory of change, right? So the technical theory of change, you know, you know, um, you know, is an insight about the technology that hasn't yet been tested that if applied to a particular issue could have a meaningful impact. And we basically, you know, sometimes we'll build fully mature products that, that, that serve, you know, billions of users. But most of the time, what we like to do is um, build an experiment um, to test our hypothesis. And when that experiment works, we've got a solution. Um, and when we think we've got a solution, we either graduate it to Google, if it makes sense on Google surfaces, or we just give it away for free externally. Sometimes we, we do both. And so can you give an example of one of the solutions that you guys have shipped? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, we have a product called, I can give you a handful. We have a product called Perspective. Um, and um, Perspective is meant to address the problem um, that we have just a fundamental decline in civility of conversations, right? So the internet is made up of publishers and platforms where most of these conversations play out. And then there's three characters um, that interact 
on these platforms. There's people moderating uh, comments, there's people reading comments, um, and there's people writing the comments. Um, we have built a measurement tool where um, these publishers and platforms, and most of the marquee publishers and platforms use our technology, can run all their comments through our API, and we return a score zero to 100, for instance, how likely it is to be toxic. And our toxicity model is our best performing model, interestingly, because there's the greatest inter-annotator agreement around the types of comments that are likely to cause somebody to leave a conversation. Now, um, so, so, so we don't tell publishers and platforms what to do with the score. We just provide them a measurement tool um, and then they can do with it what they want. And the integrations are really interesting. So, you know, for publishers, it allows them to scale, moder scale model, uh, moderation. So we're seeing, you know, uh, publishers that didn't previously have comments on their platforms or only allowed limited comments on their platforms being able to, to, to turn them back on. Um, and facilitate better conversations. Um, in some cases, um, platforms are allowing the users to kind of turn the toxicity volume up or down, depending on what their threshold is. Um, and in some cases, um, the people who are writing the comments are getting a little nudge, uh, depending on how toxic it is, you know, maybe asking, are you sure you want to write that comment? You know, it has a 78% chance of being perceived as, as toxic. Now, it's very important to note on this because people, the, the common question that I often get asked is, well, isn't this censorship? We are not, um, we are not scoring by content. Um, we're measuring tone, right? So our view is, um, you know, we, we actually think this ends up facilitating free speech, um, you know, because we're, we're, we're helping people make their point um, without the sort of offensive hyperbole that would cause their comment not to be heard. Um, and so what we're in the business of trying to do is help publishers and platforms measure tone so that they can allow more comments and more conversations. So that's, that's our most mature product. Um, and that one serves billions of people around the world. So then just to be clear, just for, uh, listeners who, who may not be able to follow all of that, the idea is, is that Jigsaw developed a measurable and repeatable methodology for other platforms to use as they have people providing comments on their platform, they can give, they can, they can make a essentially an explainable um, defense for how it's being identified in terms of its level of toxicity. And that, that, that measurement is not based on the content, but on the tone and the tone is, is derived by understanding kind of particular words in particular orders or uh, I, I assume other, other methodologies, but I guess the point is, if you're a if you're a if you're a, a platform, let's say a social media platform, and you're not trying to to manage what specifically is being said per se, but you do want the conversation to be civil. So Jigsaw has come up with a tool that can at least give you some methodology of doing that on an at scale level, uh, and in a way that can be explained. Is that right? That, that's right. And we, and we give it away for free, by the way. So, you know, this is, this is, this is, um, and everything that Jigsaw builds, we give it away for free. Um, cause again, our business model is, you know, experiments that work, um, are things that can be scaled in, as solutions. And, and our mandate is to, you know, you know, apply, you know, technology to new theories of change to, to return stability to the internet. And so, you know, we couch that in terms of a responsibility to help defend open societies. So we're, we are political um, in terms of a statement of, of values that we want to defend open societies. 
Um, and then there's there's other things. You know, we we built um, uh, we built a DDoS protection tool uh, called called Shield um, that we offer to any website that serves human rights content, election monitoring content, independent media content, um, um, and, and also for for, for political or, political organizations. And what it does is it's a reverse proxy that, um, that that basically takes the website and throws Google's infrastructure in front of it, so you can't take down. You know, you can't DDoS a, a you know a human rights organization um, in you know in Ukraine without being able to take down Google.com. So we we sort of we 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 deploy our infrastructure as a shield, and we 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 protected against the some of the biggest DDoS attacks in in human history. You know, we build um, on the on the anti censorship front. We built a tool called Outline um, that allows any individual in any repressive country to set up a cloud server. Um, uh, somewhere else in the world and proxy for, you know, as many people as they want. Um, you know, the problem with VPNs is they work until they don't. Um, oftentimes they're infiltrated by groups like the IRGC and, and other secret police. Um, and they only allow you to serve, you know, sort of proxy, you know, for, 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 for yourself. Um, whereas, you know, this allows, you know, if, if you're a human rights organization, um, you can set up a cloud server in Amsterdam and you can proxy for, you know, thousands of people in Iran. So okay, this so we're now squarely in the in the realm of of you know kind of tech and geopolitics, which then brings me to um, a project that you and Eric were both involved in called the China Strategy Group. Can you just explain what the CSG was, why you guys got into this, and and it should be said that that. Eric, over the last several years, has been very vocal and very engaged on foreign policy, national security, defense-related issues, particularly as he as he left um, his his leadership position at, at, at Google. Um, so this is obviously front of mind for people such as yourself and Eric. I just want to hear one a little bit more about the CSG and how it came about. And then two, uh, as we have the conversation, we'll talk a little bit about what the role is of private companies, particularly tech companies in these kinds of questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so first of all, Eric and I love working on things together. We're, 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 we're best friends and longtime you know, partners and, 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 and colleagues. And so, you know, there's an element of every day we kind of both wake up thinking what else can we work on together? Um, but the origins of the China strategy group, and I'll explain what it is in, in a minute. It, it was it was born out of a sort of mutual frustration that we both had, which is, you know, we've been part of various you know foreign policy you know gatherings and technology gatherings you know at this point for for several years, and we felt like the conversation the, the the questions were exactly the same, and the answers were hype you know sort of hyperbole about how China's eating our lunch, not concrete solutions. And we found that you either had conversations between technologists um, or you had conversations with foreign, uh, among foreign policy people. And to the extent that there were technology people there, there were sort of more tech policy people. And what we were interested in is identifying what are the sets of questions, what, what are sort of eight questions that we think anchor this problem of an asymmetric competition with China. Um, and, 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 and that asymmetric part is important because if you look at the competition with China, um, you know, many of the asymmetric advantages that they have from a blurry line between public and private sector, unlimited state capital, hyper-connected platforms, intellectual property theft, all the things that you and your, your listeners know well, most of those asymmetries favor China. 
Um, and if we view it as a competition between just the US and China, we are going to lose. And the evidence of that is just based on the facts, right? So we can beat our chests all we all we want and say, we're going to get through this and we'll be fine because America always gets through it and it's fine. But the, 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 the facts tell a different story here, which is China's producing five times the number of software engineers at a similar level of skill and quality. They're beating us already in voice recognition, facial recognition, e-commerce, payments, um, you know, central bank-backed digital currency. They have 80% of the commercial drone market. Uh, we're about, you know, 50-50 in phone manufacturing. They have the majority of AI research papers. They have a massive first-mover advantage in 5G. They've just surpassed us in quantum computing. They're already past us in quantum communications. We basically have semiconductors. Um, you know, so 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 so, and 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 a handful of other things. But the point is, whatever we're doing isn't working. Um, the chest beating is not a solution. It's a rally. It's sort of a rallying cry, and that's fine. Um, and so Eric and I wanted to sort of treat this like we would at Google, which is you know, Google, you have you know this concept of you come up with objectives and key results, right? Which is you know the problem that you're trying to solve, and then you know a set of activities um, for how to get there. So we decided we would apply that you know logic to 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 the asymmetric challenges with, with China. So, you know, so for instance, um, so, 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 that, so then the question is, who do you want around the table? And what we wanted around the table were kind of deep subject matter experts on China. Um, and we didn't care how well versed they were in technology. Frankly speaking, we saw it as an advantage if they were not sort of as familiar with technology, because we wanted them to bring pure China expertise without biases about the technology. And then separately, we targeted, um, you know, uh, software engineers who had really spent almost no time thinking about China, but knew a ton about AI, knew a ton about quantum computing. And the idea was that these are busy senior people in their respective fields. Um, they don't know about each other's worlds. They're both interested in this problem and they'll enjoy getting to know each other. Um, and our view was, you know, let's have a one-off meeting um, around the eight questions that Eric and I came up with. And, you know, if that meeting goes well, we'll have another meeting. Um, and then, um, uh, so that's what we did. Um, and we lost a few people, right? You have to kind of winnow it down, but we realized that, you know, this model, this sort of generative model concept where we basically took the eight questions, we iterated on the questions with the group, and then we divided up the group. And then after that, we met every single Monday for eight weeks. Um, and, um, the only thing that happened in the meeting was, um, a different group presented, um, their proposed, um, solution and set of recommendations for each of the questions, right? So it was a self-selecting group in the sense that for some people, it made sense to focus more on, you know, um, you know, the critical technologies piece. For some people, it made more sense to focus on multilateral solutions. For others, it made more sense to focus on, you know, ensuring platform dominance. Um, and, uh, and so they got feedback from the group. And then, you know, we pieced the report to, to, together at the end. And, and, the, the, the aspiration here was to basically write something that regardless of who won a presidential election, and we finished it before the election, that we could sort of offer something that could be tasked out to the interagency on day one that specifically focused on the sets of questions that we knew both parties were asking. And what kind of reception has it received? So I think the thing that... I, I've found most intriguing is um, 
it, it's gotten an equally positive reception on on both sides of the aisle, and and that reinforces my view that that the competition with China is a rare foreign policy issue that is very relatable back to the American people, regardless of where they live. Um, and two, that this may be the most bipartisan you know issue of our time right now, at, at a time where you have sort of hyper polarization and divisions in the country. Um, there, there's no, there, there does not seem to be massive division over um, the, this question of how do we, you know, not lose our edge to, to to China. There's differences in terms of, you know, the methodology to get there, but there's a fair amount of bipartisan consensus around this. Um, we've also been able to get a lot of traction um, in the new administration for some of these ideas. I'd say the one that, uh, one that has gotten, um, I think, the most traction is. Um, uh, some of our proposals for um, uh, multilateral approaches to this. So the, the the report the report makes the argument, and it echoes something that Richard Fontaine and I wrote in Foreign Affairs around uh, uniting the techno democracies. But um, we sort of position the competition with China as you know every country in the world wants technology because they it's the language of efficiency and they want a more efficient society. And so most countries don't build it organically. So when they look around, so they have to get it from somewhere else. And when they look around the world, they basically see two competing models of efficiency. So you have a top-down authoritarian model of efficiency that comes from China, and that's basically bigger, better, faster, with you know, you know, lots of caveats. Um, and then you have a values-based model of efficiency um, that comes from uh, primarily from the United States um, that says, you know, we we are going to maybe build a little slower and more thoughtfully. Um, but what you get is going to be without so many of those constraints. So if you look at mRNA technology, it didn't happen faster than Sinovax, um, but it's a better technology that countries around the world want. And it is a better technology because it benefited from peer reviews and quality controls and separation of universities from the state and, and, and so forth. So our, our insight was that this cannot be an ideological competition because countries are just going to go with the better product um, and they're going to go with the product that makes them more efficient. Um, you know, and, you know, that can be amended depending on the incentives that the country offers. Um, but the other insight that, that the group came up with that I think has resonated with the new administration, as well as the, 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 the Republicans outside of the administration is, you know, if this is a battle between techno-democracy and techno-authoritarianism, um, they can do techno-authoritarianism on their own. They're big enough. Um, they have all those asymmetries that benefit them. We cannot do techno-democracy on our own. So, so what the report calls for is to create a new multilateral architecture of, of, of techno-democracies. And there's basically 12 advanced democracies that are also leaders in technology where the vast majority of that tech exists outside of government. So you have the US, Canada, Germany, France, UK, Australia, South Korea, Japan, Finland, Sweden, Israel, and India. Um, you know, you can maybe make the case for for for, for one or two others, um, but we need these techno democracies to come together, and it could be an informal multilateral architecture. Um, but they need to set an agenda for how techno democracy. I don't want to say wins out over techno authoritarianism because this isn't the Cold War where one side is going to defeat the other side. Every single country in the world is going to be a cocktail of technologies. Um, some of the techno-authoritarian bent, some of the techno-democracy bent. But I think we need to treat it like a good old-fashioned market share problem, which is there are certain types of technology that matters to us and certain types of technology that doesn't matter to us, which is also something 
we got into in, in, in the report. So for the types of technologies that matter to us, we want dominant market share um, in favor of techno-democracy um, in countries around the world. Because you know, if you have a situation, for instance, where um, you know, you know, you know, all of the technical infrastructure is being built by a techno-authoritarian state throughout the entire developing world, um, that creates a very dangerous geopolitical situation. So uh, I obviously agree with that. Um, when you say that we can't do technology, technological democracy alone, just unpack that. How do you mean? We're, we're just not big enough, um, right? So, 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 so we play by rules. China does not play by rules uh, or doesn't play by the same rules, right? And so, so a way to think about this is, you know, when it comes to technology, right, you know, they're as capitalist as, as, as we are. The difference is they participate in two capitalist systems, one that, that is based on the liberal international order of free market capitalism and one that is totally asymmetric that we don't participate in, right, which allows intellectual property theft, you know, you know, hyper surveillance and collection of, 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 of data up the wazoo against the wishes of people in every corner of the world. Um, and, you know, if, if they're going to play in two systems and we're only going to play in one, we're just not big enough to compete on a one-to-one ratio. So that with the techno-democracy um, theory of change says is that we need to get big enough um, and we need to be big enough as, a, as, as techno-democracies um, in order to overcome so the, some of those asymmetries and retor- restore parity to the, to the competition. So one way to make the, the competition, an asymmetric competition, more of a fair fight is to have this multilateral architecture. Um, and, you know, so to me, there, there's like, I'll give you three examples of, of where I think this, this, you know, the three examples of things that could be on the agenda. So one, about, you know, every country in the world is now exploring a central bank backed digital currency or how to make sense of digital currency and electronic payments. Um, we, as the techno democracies should very much care about arriving at a set of norms and agreements around what a multilateral payments ecosystem looks like that reflects democratic values. Otherwise, you could have a situation where a country inadvertently builds a central bank-backed digital currency with technology from a techno-authoritarian regime um, that all of a sudden hands over all the financial data of its citizens to to, to Beijing, right? And so you want to avoid that. Um, second is you know critical tech, you know protection of critical technologies and rare earths. And we say this in the report. This is also a really important conclusion, which is. When people talk about this is one of the frustrations that Eric and I had is when people talk about critical technologies, you know, they they throw out buzzwords like AI, quantum computing, semiconductors, and all these different things, and th- those are just names. Those are such broad things at this point that they kind of lose their their meaning. What we did in the China Strategy Group is rather than name the technologies, we offered them as examples. We focus on, you know, if if if, if there's technology that we care about, um, meaning it's critical. Um, and everything else, the free market or even the not so free market can kind of take care of, we should focus on what the attributes are of critical technology rather than naming them. Because, you know, otherwise, how are we going to spot future technologies if it's not on the list, right? So for us, you know, we're interested in, is it a technology that, you know, um, you know, that's a single point of failure for a broader economic field? Um, You know, you know, you know, does the technology, you know, uh, provide a highly, you know, competitive, you know, defensible competitive challenge uh, advantage. You know, is the technology kind of something that has real national security implications, and is it a technology that's kind of an accelerant? Meaning, you know, you need this technology in order to, 
you know, accelerate all the other technologies. Um, so we focused a lot on dissecting those attributes and we use kind of some of these existing buzzword, you know, technologies to, to apply that, that framework, but we should always be looking at future technologies through the lens of the things that make them critical. Yeah. So that was a, a part of the report that I particularly like. So, um, what the CSG does is it gives a framework for determining, hey, how much should we care about any given particular technology? And you give those criteria that you just laid out. So I think it's choke point technologies, competitive moats, security risks, and then technology that accelerates other technologies. And you're right. I mean, in most of the conversations that occur, it is – uh, a particular technology uh, specific kind of conversation, and look for 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 policy crowds who who aren't technical, it's not surprising, right? Because it at least gives somebody something to hold on to when they talk about that. And you know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of conversation. There's also a lot of marketing uh, around things like AI and and quantum and that kind of thing. But these are these are truly significant technologies. But the way the CSG went about. Uh, defining and giving, again, a kind of a, a methodology or a framework of thinking through what is actually critical. Because there's there's enough real problems for us to have to engage that we don't need to spend time and energy chasing after things that aren't actually critical. And okay. it's a recognition, if I understand it correctly, it's, a, it's also a recognition of like, look, limited time, limited resources, you can't chase after everything. Here's the kind of you know five meter target of what you need to be Aiming at, so I thought that was, I thought that was especially helpful. Um, to, to help help us understand a little bit. What is a competitive moat? So you know, so a way to th- a way to think about a competitive moat is, um, you know, you know, do you if it by having an advantage in a particular technology, um, you end up, you know, think of it in terms of like barriers of entry. Right. So, so, you know, so that's why we kind of use the, 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 the moat metaphor. So you have a, if you have a particular type of technology, um, you know, it gives you, you know, w- without having sort of dominance in that technology, um, it makes it very hard to do other things. Right. So, you know, this is why, this is why 5G was so important because what 5G is, you know, you know, what, what, what 5G does is it allows you to, to transport an, you know, unprecedented amount of data at an unprecedented, speed with low latency and connect, you know, you know, you know, you know, millions of di- devices to each other at the, at the same time, which sort of unlocks the, the internet of, of, of things. So what type of 5G one is building matters a lot. Um, I think, you know, th- there's some overlap with with choke point technology in this in the sense that, you know, semiconductors are a great example of this where, you know, you have a chip shortage, um, and it becomes a, it becomes a choke point. So one way to think about this is, you know, it's almost like defense versus offense. Vulnerability, like you know, technology that creates a vulnerability versus technology that 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 allows you to kind of, you know, build great things within your walled, you know, you know, kingdom protected by a moat because the people on the outside of the moat, you know, don't have that basic technology. And one way to think about you know competitive moats as well is like most of the world suffers from the competitive moat problem, um, in the sense that they can't, you know. You know, every you know, all these countries want to sort of build their own Silicon Valley. Part of the reason, you know, they're unable to. Part of the reason they're unable to do it is, um, you know, they don't have an advantage in the types of technology that will lead to kind of the next great innovation. 
Yeah, you know, um, kind of tying that conversation to something you said previously in terms of the um, the the ideological side of this. Um, the way I've taken to describing some of this challenge is, and I think it's I I think it's helpful, but I would encourage you to you know feel free to push back on any of this. Um, I I am convinced that uh, the Chinese government is trying to pioneer a new form of governance, one that marries up the uh, wealth that is created by their form of of kind of managed capitalism, coupled with the um, security and stability of authoritarianism. And that they, and that they, I think, rightly have concluded that um, technological innovation is going to be essential for realizing both of those aspects of, of this model of governance. Um, and, and, and that it's not an insane idea, right? That, 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 as you said, you know, they may be big enough to, to pull some version of that off. Um, and it's in stark contrast to the, to the historical model of governance that the United States has, which is, uh, you know, free market economics. I think it produces much greater human thriving. Um, the American model does, um, but because it's better for human thriving, in no way means that it's inevitable. One, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that their approach necessarily will fail, right? And um, and and I think so. As 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 a fellow amateur historian, I, I would also say that. Uh, you know, it's our model that is the historical peculiarity, not theirs, right? There have been plenty of authoritarian regimes throughout history who have managed to do well enough for long periods that it's just not safe for us to assume that theirs is somehow, um, you know, uh, unsustainable, uh, at least for a long period. So all that to say, um, I, I do think that there is an I'm at least helped by by thinking at that kind of higher ideological level of like, look, we really do have a, a competing world of ideas. I, I, I call it, we, we have kind of competing fusions, right? Like you have their uh, techno-totalitarian kind of uh, state and, and industry fusion, and you've got kind of historical uh, kind of fusionism that has at least underscored a lot of the way the conservatives are thinking about uh, the governance. All that to say, um, I take China very seriously. Um, I, as you say, I do think that they are within themselves large enough to realize many of their aims. I, I don't think that's guaranteed. And I think some of the moves that she has made recently draw some of that into question. Um, and, and like you, though, I do think that particularly in the face of that model that's emerging on the Chinese side, um, democratic alliances are essential. And, and, that, and that if we're going to realize these, these things, partnerships, because even if the United States were completely able to isolate itself and operate it completely independently, but our allies don't and they get captured by, you know, by, by the Chinese model, even if they're just held captive to it. Well, that doesn't serve us. I mean, that, that we can't operate that way. Um, now, here's the challenge with that. Uh, so I was pretty heavily involved in the 5G conversations. And 
when I would go to some of our European partners, you know, I, I spent some time in Italy talking to them. Um, and at the end of the day, they looked at us and they said, one, what's the alternative? You know, what, what alternative are you offering in terms of, you know, kind of a Western or American 5G? Two, our data is going to be captured by someone. And there was a type of moral equivalency between it being captured by Beijing versus being captured by, you know, U.S., uh, in their view, U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, and then three, they rightly said, look, this is a third of the cost, literally a third of the cost of anybody else. And they have made so many kind of trades before that where the people in government were essentially saying, look, if we don't get on this train, we are going to miss the next technical uh, revolution the way we missed the previous one. And we can't afford to do that. Yep. Yeah. I, so I think that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I think uh, let's start with the 5G bit. I, I think that's precisely right. So this you, you go back to what I said before about there's two models. There, like, there's basically two competing models of efficiency that are offering products with the same names, but built in different systems um, that look a little bit, that have some nuanced differences between them and countries will choose. Um, and I believe that um, if left to their own devices, countries will choose the product that is better um, and works for them better. And I also believe that states on both sides will try to add additional incentives to get them to go with their product, right? Much like a company would. Um, but in the case of 5G, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is um, it didn't work to go into Europe with an ideological argument because what they said to us is um, your 5G operates on millimeter wave, you know, Huawei off, operates on sub six spectrum. And while it's great to have 5G in football stadiums, that doesn't work for everyday use. Um, and we like Huawei better than Nokia and Ericsson. Um, and so, so it's, so, so I think that that represented a problem, right? And the cheaper part, the cheap, the, the argument about China being cheaper was more of a rebuttal to the ideological arguments that the U.S. was making. Um, if you look at, again, I think comparing 5G and vaccines is a really interesting analogy because mRNA vaccines are more expensive. Um, they happen slower and they're much more effective. Um, so countries are willing to pay more for more efficient technology to solve a real problem that requires better efficiency. Um, and cheaper and faster didn't work. And by the way, the Chinese were selling cheaper and faster. That was their sort of equivalent of, of an ideology, and countries would take it if they had nothing else. But but it was not their it was not their first choice, right? And so, you know, it reinforces it reinforces this view that you need a better you need the, the, the techno democracy model has to produce a better product, or the techno democracy model will not work. And the techno democracy model will only produce a better product if countries are working, if techno democracies are working together. That's the first point. Uh, on on, on the, the earlier part of your comment about China and a new governance model, I, I agree completely. I think it's, it's not a, I think of it less in terms of a political governance model. It's more of like an economic governance model, right? So I think that China understands something very clear about the international system. They look at the international system and they see a multidimensional world um, in the sense that, you know, this is an international system with a bunch of attributes and a bunch of problems and a bunch of opportunities. And there's a physical front and there's a digital front. These are not separate worlds. They're part of the same system. And so they look at the physical front of the international system and they want to rewrite the, the rules of the liberal international order. And we see them doing that across the board. There's people much more qualified to speak to that than, than I do. 
as it pertains to technology, I think their view is the rules were never written in the first place. And so they're not trying to really rewrite anything on the technological front of the international system. I think that they feel like they have a first mover advantage uh, with the pen um, to be able to, to, to write those rules. And the way that they're doing it, this is why they're trying to overwhelm standards bodies, um, because their view is the internet was built a certain way. The rules on top of it were loosely written. The state wasn't that involved. Um, and, you know, this space has evolved dramatically. And, you know, we're going to basically write the rules through engineering and do it in the form of new standards. And then one day we're going to wake up and the architecture of the internet is going to look like it was designed through a very different, you know, governance model. I, that, that's how I think they're, they're thinking about it. Um, right. And if that's the case, that's very worrisome. I also think that we're in a, at a major inflection point right now, which is we've spent basically the last 25 plus years um, innovating around this question of how information moves around the world. Um, and we are on the precipice of what I believe is a successor to the internet that will coexist with the internet that focuses on how value moves around the world. And that's much, much bigger in terms of implications. But the silver lining of this is I actually think that that much more favors techno-democracies than it favors techno-authoritarians. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to value, when it comes to programmable money, when it comes to, to things that have a financial utility to an individual um you know issues of surveillance and like you know predatory activity um matters a lot um but it's only an advantage if we show up and 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 take advantage of what i think is a asymmetry that that favors the democratic value system so all of this is is kind of bouncing around within a, I mean, just the fact that you and I are having this conversation, I think is, is emblematic of a reality that I've talked about previously. I wrote a long form essay in, in the national affairs journal about, uh, you know, the new superpowers, you know, how and why, uh, technology companies are now kind of geopolitical stakeholders. And the, the, the basic thesis is, is that, uh, the, the national security burden, more broadly, foreign policy is really migrating into the private sector because private sector actors like Google or Alphabet, um, you know, number one, they're they're legit variables in the geopolitical calculus, just in terms of the wealth that they create, in terms of the the, the I mean, even just their their um, their employee base is transnational, right? They're developing capabilities that. Go to. I mean, that's what we were just talking about. The capabilities that are being developed are decisively important in all aspects of, or virtually all aspects of, of governance. And so that uh, I think for for the last several years we've been in this moment where um, the the two stakeholders, the private sector stakeholders like Alphabet and traditional government stakeholders, have been one kind of waking up to that reality and then two trying to adjust to it. So on the one set, the state has to recognize and struggles to recognize that it is now a stakeholder, not the stakeholder, which is a challenge. And then industry, um, I think typically has a reticence to accept the responsibilities that come with the influence that it's worked so hard to, to win. Uh, because it does, it makes their life harder, right? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it makes life harder. Um, but that may, that being the case doesn't change the fact that 
well, you're on the global stage, you're not leaving the stage, and your influence is, is perhaps only growing. And that creates this interesting dynamic where um, precisely because of the way um, regimes like China are operating, and by the way, if they're able to, I think, prove this concept of of the kind of techno-totalitarianism that we've talked about, I think that it very well could become the chief export along Belt and Road in the sense of they'll box it, the infrastructure to support it will be boxed up. They'll give you a great loan to deploy it. And there will be a line of would-be tinhorn, you know, despots who, if they can, are convinced that, wait, I can be wealthy and authoritarian, sign me up. And we may be surprised where where some nations break on that. Um, and so I, I imagine that that um, one of the challenges that we're hurtling toward, and I'm, I'm not excited about this, but it does strike me as, um, if not inevitable, very likely, where countries are going to be increasingly put in a position where they kind of have to choose a flag. You yeah. know, where if, if there's a division between the techno-totalitarians and the techno-democracies, you know, because of choices, frankly, the techno-totalitarians are making, you're going to have to decide, well, okay, which of those walled gardens do you want to play in? Because you, yeah. you're, I don't know that you're going to be able to do both. Yeah, that's a real concern, right? Which is that you, and this is the problem of, a, you know, if we, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 again, I don't buy the Cold War analogy because I think it's, the, the, it's, it's, there's too many things that are different about this one <clears throat> size of China, <clears throat> the size of China's a economy the fact that there are you know second biggest trading partner that you know this isn't a battle of ideologies in the in the same sense and 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 um and 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 also that that you know the goal here is not defeat because i don't think that's a real it's not a realistic objective when and i don't we actually don't want to defeat because we're so intertwined with them what we want is a competitive coexistence um that disproportionately favors the techno democracy um but if we push too hard for defeat um, you do run the risk of, um, a situation where, you know, um, they build their own, you know, operating systems on top of their own technological infrastructure. And for a while, you know, our apps and services work on top of those, but at a certain point, the chips stop agreeing with each other and you end up with a bifurcated internet. Um, I'm not against selective decoupling in very discrete contexts. I think that there's, certainly areas where that makes sense. But um, part of any policy, any foreign policy that, you know, is dealing with these issues needs to ask the question, how do we avoid, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's not quite mutually assured destruction, but, 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 but it, one thing that would put this into a cold war context is if um, we forced every country in the world into a binary decision. And, and so I have a sort of controversial view on this, which is, I think that, again, what we want is competitive coexistence within every single country. Um, and, you know, the way that we innovate and the way that we ensure that we're producing the highest quality that reflects our values is to, to in that competitive environment, in every single country have a dominant position, um, dominant being defined by technologies that reflect democratic values, not dominant in the loaded sense, you know, associated with, with, with companies. I think that there's another thing that we have not yet figured out as a democracy um, that authoritarian countries don't have to worry about, which is 
It is unique to democracies to have the vast majority of technological expertise and capacity exists outside of government. That's unique. Um, authoritarians don't have that problem. Democracy, that, that is a unique attribute of a democracy. And we have not figured out what that looks like um, as we pursue our foreign policy objectives. So we do multilateralism. I, I don't know that I, these days I can say we do it well, but we do multilateralism. Let's, for purposes of argument, let's say we do it well. Um, and then actually, like we do multi, we, we do multi sector approaches pretty well. Um, you know, the private sector can get together with others in the private sector and do great things. We have not figured out how to build multilateral, multi-sector um, efforts. We, we haven't figured out how to do it. Um, and it's the type of thing that honestly only the US government can initiate. Um, and you know, this is why I'm so keen on building a, a new multilateral architecture of techno-democracy is because if you get those advanced democracies all together um, and acknowledge this unique attribute that all of our techno, you know, a huge portion of our technological capacity and expertise exists outside of government, we can sort of band together and figure out um, how to, how to, you know, how, how to work with all of our private sectors. Um, again, not on everything, um, but on, you know, frankly, a set of issues that we outline in the, in the, in the China strategy group. So like, again, standards is a great example. Like we should, like if we cannot do a multilateral, multi-sector approach to ensuring that the future internet is not architected based on authoritarian values, then I don't know what we can do a multi-sector, multilateral approach on. Yeah, I, so I think that I, I want to say the CSG memo calls the the multilateral. I think it's like the T twelve, and I think you mentioned some of the the, the technology twelve. And uh, so uh, I want to I want to hit a couple of the points that you just made, but and then start kind of winding us down, but. One, one of the key challenges uh, with building that kind of T12 model, which we have to do, total agreement that we have to do that, uh, is the sheer unevenness of technological capacity within those countries, right? Mm -hmm. So um, many of those countries have, you know, kind of some some companies or or, or some capabilities that I think are, are excellent. You know, I think of I mean, this is associated with with Alphabet, but like DeepMind in the UK is you know excellent, excellent AI. Um, but the for the United States to build this coalition as we must, it's going to take a great deal of. Um, it's a heavy lift, right? We we need to be willing to do a lot of um, a lot of work, perhaps even investment. Uh, to to help these companies get into a place to where they can be effective partners and where we're actually singing from the same same song sheet. Now that's worth yep. it. I, I think that's worth worth it. Uh, but it's going to have to be more than uh, as you know, as you said at the top of this conversation, it's going to have to be more than just you know dialogues and and yep. conversations. It, it's going to have to be meaningful engagement with our respective industries so that we're actually driving toward a yep. real tangible thing. Yep. Yeah, I, th I, I agree. I agree completely. And, and, and I think the companies, you know, the companies will sort of show up for, you know, talking, but that's not going to move, that's not going to move the needle on it. Right. So I think that the, so the key thing is I accept that there needs to be a healthy regulatory tension between governments and companies. Um, I just don't want that conflated with the discrete set of technology issues where, the public sectors and the private sectors should be working together. I think when it all gets conflated together, there's no chance of, of, of cooperation, right? And so, 
So like the transatlantic relationship from a regulatory perspective is really fractured right now. It doesn't need to be fractured on the sets of issues that 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 are kind of the of the highest national security concern vis-a-vis China. In fact, I actually think you may you gain traction on some of those issues and you help reestablish trust that can help, you know, have an impact on some of these others. But it also needs to be mutually beneficial. So I'll give an example. Let's give the example of quantum computing. There's only a hand there's like a there's like a low single digit number of countries in the world um, that have real quantum computing facilities. There's probably 5,000 engineers total worldwide that are sort of tier one capacity and they need teams of critical mass in those facilities. Right. And so, um, so, uh, you know, most of those low single digit countries are techno democracy countries. So you could imagine a situation where the T12 decides we want to ensure that, you know, tier one technology, tier one quantum computing talent stays in techno democracies. Okay, so create a special quantum computing visa category that says, you know, we don't care if you're in Canada, Germany, or the US. Um, if you're sort of, you know, one of these, you know, outstanding quantum computing engineers, our view is as long as you're in one of these countries in a techno democracy, we want you to feel like you and your family can move freely. Um, and by the way, you know, if you're from another country and, um, you're not a citizen of that country, um, and, you know, uh, you know, China's offering you citizenship, um, we should be able to offer you a path to citizenship, um, so that we keep you in, you know, techno democracy. That's a small example, but that's one that, that's, that's one that's like right in the bullseye of mutually beneficial. Right. And, and relative to some of these challenges, on the easier side, right? Right. right? Like this is doable, and and I think does go to yeah. I think I think quantum is in many ways the game, and uh, and I am concerned about China's uh, at least potential advantages there. And then the the final point I wanted to make, uh, based on something you you had said, um, was and this is very much colored by my kind of national security, you know, intel kind of perspectives, but. Um, I, like you described, would prefer a place where uh, we have some type of sustainable um, kind of coexistence with China. Uh, I want that. I prefer that. It's better in every way if we can achieve that. Um, But it's unclear to me, or it's not obvious to me, if China is going to allow that. Yeah. Right. That, that, That they are pursuing decoupling. Right. So quite independent of what we would prefer, they are clearly pursuing it. They want technological and industrial independence. They have already, you know, for example, uh, all government offices, you know, are no longer buying US IT equipment and software and things like that. And I think that I think to the degree that they are able to stand up alternatives, domestic alternatives, they are going to just keep marching along that line. And so at least as I think about these things, I have the ideal which I'm pursuing but always under the notion that the other guy gets a vote. And right now uh, the, the CCP and, and, and she particularly uh, yeah. seem, seem quite committed to um, kind of decoupling themselves from the United States and the Western yeah. uh, industries more broadly. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a great, I think it's a great insight. Um, I think that they've sort of gone in phases on this. If you had talked to me a year, actually, it's if you talked to me two years ago, um, you know, one or two years ago, I would have said they prefer not to decouple because it's kind of, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that they have to do and it's a little less convenient, but they are not afraid to do it if they have to. 
Um, and, and, and they're not afraid to do it if they have to. And if they have to, um, you know, you know, we assume we like to assume that TSMC because it's in Taiwan, you know, is, you know, is always going to, when faced with a binary choice, choose us. They supply a ton of chips to China, right? And they're, 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 you know, they, they, Taiwan does not believe that America will defend it in a real military conflict in the Strait of Taiwan. And they think their big leverage is TSMC. And you know what? They're probably right. Um, right. And, um, and also, even if you look at, you know, some of these other countries like South Korea, right in China's backyard, it's their situations are, are complicated, right? And so, so that's what I would have said two years ago. Um, uh, so uh, I think what I would say now is there's nothing to deter them from doing it. So when they look at, they, they, they see the same, like, they're not dumb, right? They see the bipartisan consensus around this. Um, they see that the U.S. is taking a more um, uh, robust posture on both sides of the aisle um, against China, um, and they don't want to. They don't want to wait to see what happens, um, and so they look at us right now and they think we're vulnerable, and we are vulnerable because we're not doing anything to deter them from doing this. This is why, again, I think the T12 is so important. I think one theory of change that I have is um, if we get big enough and multilateral enough um, um, and clear enough about what our agenda is around techno-democracy, we may be able to capture some leverage um, to, to be able to, to push back on their march to, to, to total decoupling. Um, but if you're China right now and you're looking at the democratic world, um, there's not a lot of multilateralism going on right now. I mean, look, you're about to have the 60th anniversary of the OECD on Wednesday. Um, and what's the big story? It's not how can the democracies band together to, 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 to how can the democracies band together to, to, to meet, you know, one of the most important challenges of the last hundred years, you know, whether it's technology competition with China or just COVID it's, you know, are the French and the Americans going to have a meeting? <laughs> you know, it, it, so, so if I'm, so I guess if I'm China right now, I see a huge vulnerability and honestly, like unprecedented fissures in the democratic world, um, at least in modern times. Um, and I see a growing aggressive posture that makes me conclude that one day I'm going to be forced to decouple anyway. So, you know, like a prime minister in a coalition government deciding to strategically hold their elections when they think they have a best chance of winning, I think they're following the same strategy. Yeah, I think that's right. Jared, you and I could probably go on for another hour yeah. at least, but we neither of us can can afford to do that. But thank you for being so generous with your time. This is a fascinating conversation. Uh, maybe we could do it again sometime. But um, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the work that you're doing and uh, appreciate you joining me. Thanks, Juan. I really enjoyed the conversation. We'll, we'll, we'll do it frequently.